This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. My guest today is Augustin Tardif. He is a member of the Madonna House community in Ontario. Uh, hi, Augustin. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Malcolm. How's it going? It's going pretty well. For our uh, listeners who may have not heard of Madonna House, could you tell us a little bit about its uh, origin and um, what characterizes it? Well, Madonna House is a, a lay apostolate speaking canonically, so we're, we're not a religious order per se, but there's a lot of similarities, certainly. We were, uh, we're about 75 years in, I think that's um, next year is our 75th anniversary. We were founded by a a Russian woman named Catherine Doherty, who uh, came over here uh, about a hundred years ago, really, and uh, f- fleeing everything that was going on in Russia at the time. Um, and she didn't want to start a community or anything like that, but she was always listening to God and her her natural love for the poor and her attentiveness to God in her life really let her just get swept along with, uh, with God's plans. And she, she started doing uh, racial justice work in Harlem and she started working with the poor. She came up to Toronto. She, she founded what she called Friendship House, which is in a lot of ways the precursor to Madonna House, really directly working with the poor. Um, and, uh, and, and what she saw was, was needed at the time. And from that, uh, people started coming together with her. They weren't uh, they weren't permanently working with her. They were just volunteers, um, and the the vision evolved. And uh, eventually, when a bunch of uh, people weren't sure what direction to go with, because the racial justice thing was was changing, and some saw work for the poor being the most uh, important, and some saw the racial justice as the most important, and other things like that. She came up to Ontario, really, in her mind, to retire. Uh, she thought this was pretty much the end of her her community life. She came up with her husband and went with, with one other friend, and uh, people kept coming. And that's that's really been the story of her life. People kept following her like that. And slowly she started realizing God was bringing her something else to work with in this little uh, nowhere place in, the, in Cumbermere. Madonna House ultimately formed out of that. I find it encouraging that it, this wasn't some plan she had that she accomplished through her own natural ability, although she had plenty of that. But she really was guided by by the spirit the whole time. So Madonna House in its current form is a, a group of men and women and priests all living together under one roof, which is pretty unusual. Um, we have a, a main base in Cumbermere with the majority of us here and then about 20 other smaller field houses spread throughout the world in, in Russia and England and America and places like that. And those are, that spreads Madonna House's influence throughout the world. And, and we uh, interact with the local people there through those places. Uh, that's actually very interesting that, you know, like she didn't plan to found a community that she didn't have like this blueprint. Um, uh, in an earlier podcast episode, I was discussing with a guest um, about how being too intentional right away can be dangerous for a community because he, the guest brought up 
um, the fact that he had a friend who wanted to start a community. He had a whole blueprint. There was a rule of life and everything, but he said this guy didn't even seem to really have any friends, let alone people who were willing to join an eventual community once this guy could get it started. Um, so we kind of laughed about that a bit because the uh, the Catholic intentional community scene does seem to attract uh, people with more, um, uh, perhaps who are a little too prescriptive about how uh, God is going to work in their lives at times. It's uh, it's commendable that early zeal that you get when you have an idea and you see a legitimate good you can do. And uh, I'm sure God can work with that for sure, but you, you have to be careful about Temptations are not just temptations to do bad things, but temptations to do your own thing. And and I think that's what really helped with Catherine, that she, her and her vision, it just, it kept changing. It kept changing. And uh, and my own personal journey with Monada House, well, it's not nearly as spectacular as hers, but my vision changed a lot too. Because I had a, I, I felt the call to a celibate life since I was an early teenager. And that's stayed strongly with me, but it was a, an immature understanding where I saw the world and I saw the, the ways that it's in trouble and the ways that it corrupts you. And I said, okay, I want no part of that. I want to find a nice religious community where I can uh, hide out and not get you know, affected by any of that stuff and just work on my relationship with God without really you know, focusing on people, which is comically short-sighted uh, at this point but when i came to madonna house i was just looking for that community experience because you don't you don't want to dive headfirst into franciscans or cistercians or something like that without really um, making sure it's it's more than just a theory um, and when i came here one thing that surprised me was that this is not a hideout from the world um, but it does offer the strength of the community, the strength of the structure of a religious-focused life that I was looking for, but it, it wasn't insulated. Uh, we have, I mean, obviously COVID has disrupted a lot of this, but we have uh, hundreds of guests come through our, our Compromere branch every year, and that's a, it's a consistent part of the life here, that people come in here, they stay for a week, they stay for a year, somewhere in between. Some of them stay on like I did. Um, but most of them, they come for a while, they absorb the spirituality, and then they go back into the world. And I don't think I realized how important that was at the time. But uh, most people who, who don't have faith or who have fallen away from uh, a real active living out of the faith, they're not going to absorb things from being preached at so much. But if uh, one of their friends comes into their life having been revitalized, that person's a missionary in a, in a, in a small M kind of way. And they, they won't naturally be in that state where you, you hear someone talking about God from a pulpit and you kind of close up like that. Like, you know this person, it's built on relationship. Uh, and I, I find that kind of missionary work much more fruitful. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a very interesting story. Um, so you never intended to stay long-term. It just uh, happened. How long have you been at uh, Madonna House now? Uh, I'm about six years in now. I, I didn't intend to stay, but I had always had in my mind, I don't want to go vocation shopping uh, because 
even early on, I knew that was a good way for me to put my own ideas up there and just, just taking, taking things out of God's hands that way. And when I came here and, and even when I decided to join here, my understanding of, of this vocation was uh, limited, as immature. I liked the lifestyle. I liked the people. People were normal. They were welcoming. It's a healthy relationship. You get to work with the land. You have the, the ebbs and flows of the liturgical season in a way I had never seen before. Um, Catherine Doherty came from Russia, so she brought a strong Eastern influence to Madonna House, which is something I didn't know at all. I, I grew up Roman Catholic, and I guess I technically knew there were Eastern rites, uh, but I didn't know what they were or what their strengths were. And we have a an Eastern Rite Mass once a month here, the Byzantine Rite. It's, it's Catholic, but it has a, a very different feel to it. And it it complements the Western Rite beautifully in a way that I, I hadn't seen before. So all these things were coming together and I could see the beauty in them, but it, it, it took me a while to realize that uh, my initial understanding of my vocation as something primarily inward was going to be really turned 180 into this this outward movement and, and god's still surprising me in the ways that he he brings that up uh, i think a lot of western uh, catholics are you know surprisingly um, unfamiliar with the idea of eastern right catholics i'm lucky to have experienced several eastern Right liturgies, and they're very, very beautiful, very inspiring. And I, I really like the fact that you're highlighting that um, you shouldn't join a community to run away from something or even necessarily to find a different way of life. I recently interviewed a member of the Bruderhof communities, they're Anabaptists. Um, and uh, he was saying that, you know, he didn't join the Bruderhof community um, for a different way of life. He didn't join it to get away from the world. He joined it to follow Christ. And that, you know, all these other things are, like he's saying, it's great to live in community. It's beautiful. And sure, there's a lot of things wrong with the world. Um, but if those are primary, he was saying, in the life of a community, that community will ultimately fail. It will just be a human thing, not, a, not anything connected to the divine grace that can come when one is trying to follow Christ. So it's interesting to hear you bring that aspect up. Yeah, it's a, it's been eye-opening to me, certainly. And uh, it, it's always struck me as beautiful that you don't have to sacrifice your relationship with God in order to, to do these things. And that seems to be, he prefers you to, to want to go outward. It's not like you have the choice of relationship with God or helping other people. Like, they always go together. Um, and... And, and it goes both ways, of course. The, the strength of the community is that you see the example of gospel life being lived out right in front of you in a, in a way that it, actions always speak louder than words. And you, you see, you, you hear a lot of things, but then when you see them actually lived out by the members here, it, it takes on that new dimension. Yeah, can you, uh, I know you mentioned that Catherine Doherty uh, came from Russia. Can you tell us a little bit more about her life story? Her life story would make a, 
a two-hour Hollywood movie if you could get through it. She, she was uh, born into nobility, minor nobility, um, and then she was born at the, at the beginning of the 1900s, probably the late 1800s. It's a little hard to tell with her. She doesn't, her Russian style does not adhere well to specific dates. We think 1896, that's her best guess. She said a few different things. But the timing of that means the communists and she, she lived through pretty much every, uh, she died in 1985. So, you know, 1896 to 1985 is a whole lot of world turmoil. And she was uh, forced out of her, her home by the communists in the early 1900s and fled across as uh, she was a, a nurse in the war and she, she got shot on horseback in the middle of the night at one point. And has the story about being locked in a house and starved for a few weeks and uh, all kinds of crazy things. But eventually she, she got over to Canada, uh, to Toronto and, uh, started and started working with the poor pretty much. She had a husband and a son at the time. Uh, her husband was ultimately unfaithful and, and a few other things. She was married when she was a teenager and that marriage was eventually annulled. So she had, she had to deal with all of that. Just a note for the listeners, after this first marriage that Augustine mentioned was annulled and before she moved to Cumbermere, Catherine married the journalist and author Eddie Doherty. Um, but she's in this new country, new culture, with a, a young child, seeing the, the, the effects of, of poverty. And she comes to Toronto. She sees poverty there. She comes down to Harlem. Uh, she's the only white woman in Harlem, as far as I can tell. And she's opening up uh, this soup kitchens and, and things like that. She was an incredible woman, all, all the things that she did. And um, much of the following of Madonna House came just being attracted to her, her real fervent love of God. And so some of these people, these saints, and I, I doubt she'll ever be canonized, but she, she has that same profile as someone that you can just see the love of God at work in her and see that this, this uh, gospel life that she's talking about is possible. It's hard, but it's possible. And I think that's what led to, to people joining her in all these different things she did. And even, like I said earlier, when she came up to Cumbermere, um, really, uh, she's about 50 years old, I think, when she came over here. She thought that was, that was it. That was it for me. I'm just going to this nowhere place. It's just going to quiet down. And, uh, and, and God kept bringing her more people. And, and I, I'm in that number now. Now, it's amazing how the saints and the saintly figures can provide us with an inspiration that shows us that, you know, it's possible to live differently. That thinking about how when St. Francis of Assisi, you know, he didn't intend to start an order. He just walked out of his wealthy, comfortable lifestyle, ended up dressed in rags, walking about the streets, trying to serve the poor, begging for his food, and people flocked to him. And he realized that he had to start something because of all the people who came to him. And that's and the same thing. St. Benedict, you know, the, the founder of Western monasticism, went out, lived in a cave, and eventually disciples came to him. Uh, and it's interesting to see that similarity with uh, um, Catherine Doherty's uh, 
fairly uh, spontaneous development of community as people came to her. Uh, you talked a little bit about uh, the outreach of Madonna House. Um, you talked about the, um, you know, that, that they host all these guests. In what other ways does Madonna House uh, reach out uh, to the surrounding community? Well, I mentioned the field houses that we have. So some of them are primarily Corporal Works of Mercy places. We have uh, soup kitchens in Edmonton and Regina, uh, pretty large operations over there, clothing rooms, things like that. But uh, in, in a similar fashion to that evolving uh, vision of, of the apostolate, so when Catherine first came here, she dealt with direct material poverty and fixing that. And the government wasn't that involved in that in any way. Um, but over the course of the years, the government started getting involved and other soup kitchens were popping up. And she could see that there's a, there's more than one way of, more than one poverty out there. And the poverty of loneliness was becoming this real epidemic. And certainly today you, you can see that everywhere. So the majority of our houses are not soup kitchens. Um, they're called prayer and listening houses. And they don't have that direct, uh, we give you stuff aspect of it that some other houses do. But what they are is they are there to be Christian presences in whatever place they're in. And for people to come by, and not necessarily to solve their problems, but to give people a chance to to live life in the secular world and to not just be alone about it. Um, and I, I understand you've been talking to people about that exact thing for, there's a million different ways of doing it, but it's funny how you really, you just need to be available. You need to to be genuine and you need to be available and people will come. And these houses, people ask me, you know, what do you do? Like, well, don't worry about it. We we're kept busy. Like you do, you do the maintenance of the house and people come all day long and they fill your day and they fill your life. That's, that's really very beautiful. And it is so needed. Uh, there's a beautiful uh, ministry here in Denver that works kind of similarly. It's called Christ in the city. Um, it's where young uh, missionaries, they live in community for a few years together, and they serve the homeless poor on the streets of Denver. But primarily, they're not giving them material assistance. They do serve, once a week, they serve a lunch in the park, and there's some other practical things they do. But the main part of their work is just walking through the streets, meeting the homeless, getting to know them, and speaking to them with love and respect. They told me that um, you know, many of the homeless, they never even hear their names spoken. Um, and, and gradually their very names fade away, their, their personhood fades away from them. And the Christ in the city missionary is there to be Christ for that person. And they said, you know, the hardest thing is, is accepting that you can't fix them or their problems often. Um, but the thing to do is to be there for them in their problems. Uh, because as they said, all the more practical things, you know, like there's soup kitchens, there's shelters. But if the person doesn't feel respected and valued and doesn't understand their dignity, um, they will not take advantage of those services. The services might as well not exist as far as those confirmed homeless on the streets. Um, and so therefore the love, the, the respect has to be given first, given back to these people. Well, that problem is not uh, limited to the homeless by any means that 
not having love and respect or acknowledgement and you see uh, in the modern world where people are so isolated in in their digital world or or what have you that i i don't see that service not being needed anytime soon no it's perhaps the the greatest lack of the modern world and the reason why there is so much interest in in building community is because our world is so atomized and so alone yeah, that's it's the modern condition for sure. And when you pile that on with with the spiritual poverty that you see out there, where people don't uh, don't really have an understanding of God in their life, and it's a it's a pretty brutal combination. So you're at the the main Madonna House location in Cumbermere. What is your daily life like? What does the uh, community do? Well, personally, I'm up at our farm, so we have a pretty, not a big commercial farm, but a pretty big farm. We grow as much food, we keep animals as we can, and uh, it's it's the most efficient way of working with money on a practical sense, because we're a begging community, so everything we have is either a direct donation or the money that we buy things with comes from donation. So we, we don't... Uh, we don't support ourselves in that way, but if you can spend $10 on seeds instead of $100 on the, the ultimate product, that's, that's a pretty good use of that. And then there's, there's just a real healing working with the land that I think most anyone who's, who's lived with animals or gardened has, has a taste of. And I always see the Bible in a different dimension, having worked with sheep and things you see where Jesus was coming from. You see where most of the people would have would have understood it just living with that constantly around them and there's a, there's a healing that comes in that kind of lifestyle too or or even seeing the value of work work not just as a means to an end but as a as a gift that god has given us that that extended stewardship that he, he talks about in uh in genesis where you where you hear that story the, at, at the end of the creation story, God says, have dominion over all of the animals and the plants and all that. I used to think of dominion as you are king of the physical world, you know, like you're, you're just gonna be the best living in there. But uh, we, we had a calf born uh, a couple of years ago and he was kind of funny. He, he had this dopey look on his face and he'd stick his tongue out at all times. 24-7, he had his tongue poking out of his mouth. He's a very cute little guy, but it meant he couldn't drink well because he, you can't suck on a bottle well with your tongue sticking out. So to feed him, you'd have to climb into this little pen with him. And a, a young calf is still a big animal. It's like a large dog size and they're enthusiastic. He wasn't sick. He was just <laughs> different. So you climb in there and you get this big bucket of milk and you're trying to hold him still and get him to suck. So you have to put him in this kind of loose headlock and uh, just clamp him into onto that bucket. And then he'd thrash around and he'd drool all over the place and it would take about 10 or 15 minutes to, to feed him. So you'd have a lot of time to think. And I remember I was sitting there at one point and I you know, just kind of pinned against the wall here and you got milk drool all over your pants and everything. And that Genesis passage came back to me 
like have dominion over the animals, etc. And like, oh, this is the dominion he was talking about. This is the dominion that God experienced in the incarnation. Uh, it's not this floating king of the world kind of dominion. You got to get in there. You got to get dirty. You've got to live the life of the people or the, the things that you're you're going towards. And uh, it's the farm is great for that. I wish everyone could spend a year on a farm. They really would see things in it with a, with a unique clarity, I think. That's just my own my own day-to-day -day life up there. We have uh, all kinds of things we do here. But the, the guests who come, they slot right in there. They, they do the same work that we do. That's another thing that uh, attracted me to this a little bit. I had visited monasteries before, or one monastery in high school anyway, and they were very nice. It was a, a Cistercian monastery in Massachusetts. They let me shadow them and help the sacristant out a little bit. And it's a beautiful, peaceful place, but it was clear that they were the monks and I was the visitor. And, you know, you see all the habits and everything like that. We don't have habits here, which is uh, all we have. A, we wear a cross. That's about it. And a lot of people wear crosses. So when you, you come here, you really... You're just one of us. The only difference is we're here long-term and you're here less long-term. Um, but I think that's crucial to, to the, the outreach that we're looking at. To, and, and also that uh, those guys at the monastery, they really seem like holy people to me. You know, the, the, the robes and the quietness and the solemnity and all of that. And it, it seemed a little unattainable. I was... I was 17, I think, uh, and it's like, oh man, that's that's the big leagues right there. And when you come here, it's not that we're not good people, but we're just normal people. And I didn't always see that as an advantage. Uh, some people have tempers, or you know, they're they're a little rough around the edges, or things like that. But that means that if you're coming to us and you feel like that about yourself it's not a barrier. You don't feel like, well, these are the, the holy people and they're just letting me stick around here. Like, yeah, you can, you can be here. You can, you can be yourself. There's a million personalities here and you're just one more of that. You do the same work that we do. You go to the same masses, the same meals, same recreation. Uh, I, I think that's a real, that's a, a real bit of wisdom from the foundress in that part. Yeah, you know, when you were talking about, uh, you know, dealing with the land, um, that, that's that's a wonderful thing because, yeah, it kind of puts you in your own place in a sense. I mean, in one sense, it means you're picking up the mantle of being, you know, the the Lord or master of the created world, the, the servant that God sent to tend the garden, the steward. But at the same time, you quickly realize how little control you have over things um, oh, you know as, as a gardener you know i'm always kind of watching the clouds wondering about hail um it, it gives a different aspect to the world i think that one of the problems we have in the modern world is that our technology gives us an illusion of being in control all the time when you know all of our lives are really a preparation supposed to be a preparation for death when we lose control um, and if we've spent our whole life feeling that we're in control, how are we going to face 
that final loss of control where we have to surrender ourselves to the will of God, um, it, it will be hard. But, you know, it isn't, of course, that working on the land is easy. In one sense, the point is that it isn't easy. Yeah, it's not easy. And any idea that you're in control gets wiped out pretty quickly. So you don't, you don't have to look for that. Uh, and I also find that the the gap between God and us is not something we can really hold in our minds, right? The infinite to the finite. That's not something you, you can really understand. You can understand the gap between you and a sheep. And it's a big gap, but it's a finite gap. And you see the way the, the sheep act. Uh, they, they do all kinds of things that are <laughs> not helping them out. They get stuck in things. They, they run into fences. They can't figure out simple things. And you're like, okay, I can really see the relation between that and what I do in the spiritual life. It's a jump, but it's uh, an understandable jump. Uh, and the, the farmer to the animals is, you are in that God role to, to some degree as, as you can. Um, and you can see yourself trying to do things that they don't like that are ultimately for their own good and, and the fight they have with it. And that puts in perspective our relationship with God in a, in a digestible way. Yeah, I remember a sermon where the priest was explaining that he had, <clears throat> he had worked with sheep. And he said, when, in the Gospels, when, when Christ says that we're sheep, it isn't a compliment, you know, as we would understand a compliment, that we're not, we're not that intelligent as we think we are. We're, we don't understand things, but that God loves us anyway, that he'll take care of us anyway. And that's, that's an amazing thing. I also, you know, when you were talking about just being ordinary people, I thought that was a good point, too, that, you know, communities are made up of people and they have their foibles and their faults and failings, but that they're people who are trying to follow the Lord. And so long as they're trying to follow the Lord, all those, um, you know, weaknesses and imperfections uh, don't have to be a barrier towards trying to build Christian community. Yeah, and not just uh, not a barrier, but the probably the greatest, I, I'm sure this has come up with in other conversations you've had, but the purifying element of the community is best manifested through people's less easy to deal with characteristics. If, if everything is just smooth sailing all the time, I don't know where growth comes from there. The roughness of reality, just there's no, there's no substitute for it. And there's no getting away from it either, unless you're, you're called to be a hermit or something more extreme like that. Yeah, I was just actually talking to a community leader who was saying that, you know, the, the friction that happens when we rub up against other people is what makes us into saints. Um, so if there isn't any of that friction, how are we going to how are we going to realize our own weaknesses? How are we and how are we ever going to correct them? Uh, it just won't happen. Yeah, it's virtue. It's just theoretical virtue at that point. Nothing that hasn't been put into play can really mean that much. I don't think. Call it the sandpaper effect. Right. To back up a moment, how uh, so you you know became a permanent member of Madonna House? How is that process done? Is there like a what might be called a novitiate in a monastery? Is there some sort of selection process? Who decides who can become a long term member of Madonna House? 
Yeah, so in that aspect, we're similar to a number of religious orders. You come as a guest, and if you feel called to join here, then you have a two-year period of probation, like all applicants see. And uh, that gives you time to really study the spirituality and the history. Uh, the best training here is to just live here. Um, so that's that's your real primary part, but you do you study some specifics. And then after that period, you take first promises, uh, similar to vows, a little different canonically, but it's the same idea. Uh, you promise to stay here and live the life for one year. At the end of that period, you do the same for two years. You repeat that three times. So one, two, two, two is seven. At the end of seven, uh, if you still discern that this is the place for you, then, then you take finals and you, you promise to stay here forever. So I'm uh, next year, I'll take my final two-year promise period. And at the end of that, I'll take the, the permanent commitment. It gives you plenty of time for discernment. So if you, if you stay here for around a year as a guest, two as an applicant, seven as a temporary staff, that's 10 years. So that's mm -hmm. usually enough time for you to figure out if it's a good fit or not. Yeah, I was just uh, just rereading the Benedictine rule and St. Benedict certainly seems to stress that you know nobody should be accepted permanently uh, immediately, you know, that, yeah. that there should be this period of discernment. Um, and I know that, you know, married couples are not allowed to become full members of Madonna House. Is there any way for a married couple, a family to participate in the uh, mission of Madonna House? Yeah, well, there's a, a few things. First, uh, in non-COVID times, we have a summer camp here called Arcana Colony. And maybe uh, seven or eight families at a time come for a week. We have this a little out-of-the-way place with simple cabins and a nice beach, and uh, Madonna House staff stay with them. And uh, it's a um, maybe a retreat, maybe just a, an opportunity to live with other Christian families, which in the one week that I did that, my experience was that the families are what teach each other the best. Um, and you're, you're just there to kind of make sure things keep running. But a, a number of people have grown up as kids going to Cana. And then, you know, as, as adults, they, uh, they come here to stay as a guest and, and see some of the non-camp life. Um, we do have, it's a bit of a rare example, but we have associate priests who are not not here full-time as members, but they love the spirituality and they want to be part of the, the greater family. So they wouldn't live in Cumbermere or, or in any of our field houses. They would stay with their parish, um, but they would try to live their priestly life in a, in a way similar to Madonna House, uh, following the spirituality. And they've, they've come here when they can and, and touch base with us. And some of them, because we're partly an Eastern community, some of them are uh, Eastern Rite priests who have wives and families. And those families are, it's, it's rare. I think there are only a few of them, but they are, they're part of that extended family too. I, I would say the, the main thing, and it's, it's not that complicated, is you just, um, the, the point of Madonna House is that you can take what you learn here with you and that while it 
it flourishes under the specific structure we have here at, at our main house. Um, this is not something that can only be lived if you all get up at the same time and go do the same work. It's meant to be for ordinary people. Ordinariness is a, is a big thing with us that uh, we call it our Nazareth spirituality. Just looking at the fact that Jesus spent the vast majority of his life doing ordinary things. And it was only that last three years that we really hear about when, when he began his public ministry. But that, that ordinariness, the power of the ordinary, um, and it links to the sanctity of work and the, uh, the fact that you can do God's will just by doing the little things that you're asked to do. And it doesn't have to be this spectacular uh, martyrdom or missionary work or any of the things that, you know, that, that really appeal to you in that fervent, like, I got to go out and change the world thing. You do have to change the world, but it's surprising how well you can do that just doing the little things. Um, and that kind of thing, we, we certainly, we talk about it a lot here, but that translates really well outside of our walls. I know that you uh, talked about, you know, um, subsisting on what is donated or what you can grow and, you know, practicing a certain kind of poverty. Uh, what uh, connection does living that life of poverty have to the rest of the spirituality of Madonna House? Why, why is it valued by Madonna House? Well, we, we certainly didn't invent it. It's uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience, the councils, they call them. They're... Uh, it's just the age-old wisdom of the church, and it comes straight from Jesus. You know, he told the rich man, if you wish to be perfect, go sell all you possess and give it to the poor. And I think it's that, that poverty is not the only way to get to heaven, but it really helps. It really helps. And the poverty we have here is not, it's not as drastic as some places, like we're not trying to beat the Franciscans or anything like that, but it's a, it's a combination of simplicity. So there's a lot of things you just, you don't get tangled up in them, you know, like you, you have, you have what you need to do things here, but you don't have a lot of the luxuries that you wouldn't have to be too rich to afford in the, in the rest of the world. And just the act of giving that kind of thing up is fruitful. But I think the primary purpose of poverty here is that possessions don't uh, control your life. They don't pull you around too much. I think that's what the foundress was really intent on. And um, because we're not as strict as some places where you have, you know, like literally no possessions. Um, so we, we do have, we do have possessions. It means that you, you always have to make the choice to live poverty here. Uh, it's, you're helped along to do it, and the, the structure is in place, but you always have the option to kind of toe that line if, if you want to. to uh, it, it requires a constant looking at yourself, and we do this as a community, and we do it individually, um, and we have superiors who help us out with that. But it's not just this one decision you make when you join here that you can forget about afterwards. It's a, a constant thing we try to live with. Augustine, you've talked about you know, a number of different aspects of the Madonna House spirituality. 
Um, is there any other really distinctive elements in, in the spiritual outlook of Madonna House that you'd like to mention? Well, uh, that's a big question. I was surprised personally to see how rare it was to have men and women living together as one community. Um, and and there, are, there are versions of it all over the place, um, some where families are part, I think um, Opus Dei, I'm not super familiar with that, but I know families are part of that. And then there are religious communities that have branches of men and branches of women, and maybe they get together for um, shared liturgy or things like that. But we were just totally integrated. And, and you know, that's modeled after the family, after, after the Holy Family, really, but after the family, which is God's primary way of having people work with each other. And it's, uh, it, it's always struck me as surprising how uncommon it is. And certainly living chastity when you have men and women together is a challenge, but it's not as undoable as it seems. And it's another part of the thing that uh, makes Madonna House translate well, in my opinion, to the rest of the world. That if you uh, you come and live here and then go back to the regular world, you're not going to some place just totally different from where you just were. Um, there's there will be differences for sure, but it's not it's not a totally different world, and it's not something that that can only work here and, and doesn't work there. And as far as the spirituality goes, it's there's just a million different things. It's hard to really put your finger on, but um, the poverty and simplicity maybe stands out when you just get here a little more than the others. Uh, our foundress was big on the little flower and her her way of not having to be a spiritual giant to advance in the spiritual life to really just. Uh, let the little things carry you and, and let God work through you in the ordinary. That's, that's very big. Um, and we have, a, we have something we call the little mandate, which is a collection of phrases and uh, instructions that Catherine received from God. Not, it's not like God appeared to her uh, and just said, write down all this stuff but things that keep, kept coming back to her over and over and over and really formed Madonna House. Um, I, can, I can send you a, a copy of it. It would be a little much to recite right now, but it's, it's the best summary of Madonna House in, in one place that you can really get. Yeah, I would love to uh, you know, link to that in the notes for this episode so that people can read it and get a deeper understanding. Uh, what is your... The Madonna House's relationship to the local church, to the diocese and such. I know that there's priests who live in the community. How does that how does that work? Yeah. Um, Catherine, when she came here, was very insistent that we do only what the the bishop tells us to do, that we really bring everything to him and act under his guidance. And so we, we have a number of priests here, some from much uh, a lot of different dioceses 
and they remain incarnated into the diocese that they were ordained into, even if they are full members of the non-house, which means that their uh, bishops can that have allowed them to be here, but could at the moment's notice uh, reassign them anywhere else. Um, and it's it's another element of that poverty that you would like the surety of of just saying, you know, we, we exist on our own. We were, our vision is not going to be interfered with, but um, it's part of putting, putting that aspect of our community in God's hands and trusting that if he wants us to do what we're doing, he's going to make it possible. And it's, uh, it's easier said than done in a lot of places, but I think it's a, it's a good place to live on. You know, as we as we come to the end of our uh, time here, is there a, one or two things that you'd like to say to anyone who's trying to you know build more community in their local area, whether intention you know more intentional and formalized or a little less so? Yeah, it's it's commendable. I it's really night and day with me trying to live the spiritual life on my own and trying to live it here. And I remember a time I, I had come here and I liked it, but I had to pay off college debts. So I went back and worked a job for a little bit. And I was surprised how a lot of what I thought I had just figured out withered without a support structure around it. So, and there's a, there's a million ways to do that, but um, I, I I would say just go for it for sure. And um, that element of, of listening to the Holy Spirit and not getting too attached to the specific form you have in mind, I think is pretty important. And we've had to redefine ourselves a number of times uh, over the course of the Don House. And, and even recently, we're, we're just still looking at the world, where people are coming from, what they're experiencing, and trying to see what, you know, what, what do people need? This is, this is a, to let, to let people come to God. And there, there's a, a million ways to do that. Personally, I found the, uh, the liturgical seasons super helpful in, in that constant reminder of, um, in, in the regular world, you Halloween and the 4th of July and Christmas and Thanksgiving, those are the big holidays, things like that. And when they, they come up, especially as a kid, you get excited and there's the specialness of that. And for me, the Annunciation growing up was just, oh, like, you know, this is, it's just another mess. Um, but over here, the Annunciation is a huge deal. The Assumption is a huge deal. The, the uh, Corpus Christi is a big deal, things like that. And when you have the privilege of living where these things are celebrated and highlighted, it keeps you in that mindset. It keeps you aware of that, that reoccurring pattern of, of God's salvation. I find that super helpful. Yeah, thanks so much, Augustine, for sharing your thoughts. It's really been great hearing about Madonna House. Uh, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time to come on this. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. I'm, I'm glad you're, you're interested in working with people like this.
Yeah, have a great uh, rest of your day, and um, may God bless you and all the people at Madonna House. Okay, you too, Malcolm. Thanks, I appreciate it.